All right. Well, good morning, River City. Uh, my name is Bran. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to join you for worship this morning. Uh, looking forward to opening God's Word with you together. Uh, we would love to get to know you. would love to help you get plugged in here at River City. Uh, like Becky said, uh, even if you're new, we'd love to have you at Vision Night. Um, that's uh, just a great way to really find out what River City is really all about. We don't try to hide that on Sunday mornings. Like We're pretty upfront about what matters to River City and, and what we care about here. But if you want like the real inside scoop, a little bit more depth on what we're about and how to really get involved and be a part of what's happening here. I'd love to have you at Vision Night. So uh, like I said, though, excited to continue walking our way through the book of Nehemiah this morning. But if you have been gone or if you're just joining us for the first time, let me just briefly catch you up on where we're at. The uh, book of Nehemiah is a book at the very end of the Old Testament storyline. And, and like every other book in the Bible, uh, Nehemiah is actually not a book about Nehemiah. It's actually a book about God. And Every book in the Bible is revealing something to us about who God is and what he's done and, and what it's like to love and serve him. And that's at the very heart of every book of the Bible. And so the story that we find in Nehemiah is all about highlighting how God is sovereign and faithful to keep his promises. We see that happening throughout the book is that God's using Nehemiah to bring about the fulfillment of promises that he's made to his people to forgive them and redeem them and restore them and to, again, once again, gather them to be a community of people who will live for the praise of his glory and ultimately really to be a people one day through whom Jesus would come, the one who would rescue all people from the ultimate enemies of Satan and sin and death. And, and so we saw in chapter one how that story begins with Nehemiah serving as a cupbearer to the great Persian king Artaxerxes and he receives this report from his brother about the dilapidated state of, the, of Jerusalem and its walls and the people there and how the walls are broken down and burnt with fire and God's people are in great trouble and disgrace. And, and although this wouldn't have been new information to Nehemiah, all this would have happened over 140 years ago, what happens is we see that God causes it to hit him in a new way. God gives Nehemiah his own heart, and his heart breaks over the reality that the dilapidated condition of Jerusalem and its walls and the disgraceful state of God's people living there is ultimately really proclaiming a message about God himself one that's shameful and full of disgrace for God's name. And so because Nehemiah loves God and delights to honor his name and wants others to do the same, what we see is that Nehemiah knows he needs to do something about it. And so after months of praying and planning, Nehemiah goes before the king that he's serving, King Artaxerxes, and he asks him not only to give him a ton of time off work to go rebuild the walls of his hometown, but he also asks the king to personally fund and endorse that project in spite of the fact that this same very king had already specifically, intentionally put the kibosh on any and all future rebuilding efforts in Jerusalem. And so it is a truly bold request. And yet what we see is that because God's actually the one who's, uh, this is actually God's plan, not Nehemiah's, see that the king responds with, uh, with a dramatic yes and so Nehemiah gets that God's the one who's behind it all, that, that he's the one whose hand is at work behind the scenes. And so armed with uh, not only support and the resources of King Artaxerxes, but more importantly of God himself, we see Nehemiah embarks on the journey to Jerusalem. And in chapter, two, in, uh, in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, he gets there, he goes to his fellow Israelites, and he tells them about what God's put in his heart to do, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and to remove the disgrace that their shameful conditioning was, that their shameful condition was staining God's people and therefore God's name with. And, and he tells them about all that God's already done. 
in changing the heart of King Artaxerxes and in blessing and empowering the work that's uh, ever, the, the effort so far. And so in response, God's people are all in. Right? And they wholeheartedly begin the work of rebuilding the walls. In chapter 3, we saw how everybody's in, people from every part of society that come together to rebuild the wall. And everything is going really good until you get, through chap- until you get to chapter 4. And chapters 4 through 6 are really full of just all kinds of opposition. We saw in chapter 4 that that opposition wasn't just external, it was internal as well, right? It came in the form of external ridicule and threats from Sambalot and Tobiah and their gang, but it also came in the form of internal threats, right? Of, of fear and discouragement and just plain old exhaustion. As we continue our study in chapter 5 this morning, what we're going to see is that there's another internal form of opposition to God's kingdom building efforts that arise within the city. And It's selfishness and greed. You see, in chapter 5, the focus of the book kind of shifts away from the broken walls of God's city to the broken ways of God's people. And instead of, what we see is that instead of seeing the rebuilding effort as an opportunity to promote the welfare of God's people and to increase his glory, what you see is that some of the wealthier Jews are actually approaching it as a prime opportunity for personal gain. And when Nehemiah finds out about this, he takes the threat of this internal opposition really seriously, so seriously that he halts all of the work on the wall. He gathers everybody together to address the issue because what Nehemiah understands and what the whole book is really about is not the rebuilding of a physical wall, but it's the rebuilding of the people of God. And what Nehemiah gets is that there's no point in uh, rebuilding an external wall around internal corruption. And so what we see is this morning is that Nehemiah opposes this internal opposition to God's kingdom-building efforts. And what I want to show you this morning as we study together, what I want to highlight for you as we, as we see the story in God's word is that what we're going to see is, is that it's the fear of God that motivates and empowers the people of God to reject the pursuit of worldly selfish gain and instead to embody and to reflect God's own sacrificial generosity in our relationships with one another. See, it's the, it's the fear of God, it's reverence and an awe and a worship of him and all that he's done that's going to lead the people of God to embody the sacrificial generosity of God instead of to pursue the selfishness and greed that we see all around us. And so, man, it's a good one this morning. I know it uh, corrected and shaped my own heart this week. And so I can't wait to show it to you this morning. So let's pray. We'll open God's word together in Nehemiah 5. God, thank you for our time in your word. We are so grateful for it. God, and we just humbly ask this morning that you might be graciously correcting our own hearts as well. God, we live in a world that is dead set on selfish gain. And it's so easy to be caught up in it. But God, you call us to be a people who are characterized not by the pursuit of selfish gain, but by a life characterized by sacrificial generosity like you have towards us. And so God, help us to see that in your word. God, would you motivate and empower us by the truths of the gospel to respond rightly to it. God, we want to honor you as your people. And so help us do that. Um, we, We can't do it without you. And so meet us in our study this morning. God, for our good and for your glory, we ask it. Amen. All right, so uh, we are in Nehemiah chapter 5 this morning. Begins verse 1 this way. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews, 
Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous, and in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're morging our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. And still others were saying that we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. And although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. And when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. And I pondered them in my mind. And then I accused the nobles and officials and I told them, you are charging your own people interest. And so I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. And they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. And so I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields and vineyards and olive groves and houses and also the interest you are charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. And I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. And I also shook out the folds of my robe and I said, in this way, May God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. And so may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor, but the earlier governors, those preceding me, they had placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. And their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work of this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work, and we did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came from around the nations. <clears throat> Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every ten days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. All right, so there's a little bit of context we need to set up for what's really going on in our passage this morning. Right? The passage begins with, with some families. They're coming to Nehemiah, and they're crying out to him about the unjust ways that they are being treated by their fellow Jews. And we saw in chapter 3 how the rebuilding efforts for the wall, they were an all-hands-on-deck kind of situation. Like, everybody's in. And parts of every family are being a part of this. And, and which meant that most, if not all, of the primary breadwinners of these Jewish families had had to leave their jobs or their fields to go work on the wall every day. We see it wasn't a, a part-time thing. They're working from sunup to sundown. They're all staying in the city 
for all those reasons, right? And by the time we get to chapter five, it's been at least a month, at least a month of that. And so for many of these families, money is starting to get really tight. And on top of that, verse three tells us there's actually somewhat of a famine going on in the region. And so food is getting scarce. And what's happening is that instead of seeing the, the dire situation that being a part of participating in the rebuilding efforts was putting some of these families in, as a, as an opportunity to come alongside and help meet the needs of their spiritual family. What we see is that some of the wealthier Jews, what they were doing is they were approaching it as a prime opportunity for personal gain. And they're inflating the price of grain and then they're loaning people money at exorbitant rates to buy that same grain or to pay the Persian king's notoriously high taxes, which could be as much as 40%. And it had gotten so bad that some of these families are having to apparently mortgage their homes and their fields and their property and even having to sell some of their children into debt slavery in order to be able to pay these debts and to pay their taxes. When Nehemiah hears about this, verse 6 tells us he gets very angry. It's not that annoyed kind of anger, right? He's not like, ah. What next? Why do I have to keep dealing with you people, right? It's not the annoyed kind. No, it's the, it is the fuming kind of soul-level anger. Right? It's the kind of anger you need to co-cool down from, right? Verse 7 says he had to go ponder them in his mind. The ESV translated it says he had to go take counsel with himself, right? It means he had to go pull himself together, right? So he was angry, really angry, We've seen throughout the book, Nehemiah was a guy who knew his Bible well, right? He would have known Proverbs 14, 17, a quick-tempered person does foolish things. He would have known Proverbs 29, 22, an angry person, they stir up conflict. A hot-tempered person commits many sins. He had seen these verses ring true in his own relationships, right? Just in the previous chapter, Sambalot and Tobiah, right? They're really angry that God's work is going forward. And their anger is leading them towards uh, hurling insults and threatening the very people of God. Nehemiah gets that, what goes on when you get really angry. So Nehemiah pulls himself together. He takes a few deep breaths. I am sure talking with God, because that dude talks with God all the time. But I need you to see this. Nehemiah does not repent of his anger. Right? He, he doesn't act in anger, but you need to see he doesn't turn from it either because unlike the selfish anger of Sambalot and Tobiah in chapter 4, Nehemiah's anger is a righteous anger. It's an anger that aligns itself with the very heart and the very character of God. You see, like Jesus did when he overturns the money tables and the tables of the money changers in the temple, right? You see, the Bible never tells us that anger itself is inherently bad, Right? The reality is it shows that what our anger reveals is actually the problem. You see, anger is not an original emotion. You don't just wake up angry. Right? You, you get angry in response to something. It's always a response. And our, what our anger is a response to, it always reveals the things that we love most, the things that matter to us most. One pastor put it this way. He says, our anger is our response to whatever endangers something that we love. Anger is our response to whatever endangers something that we love. You see, Sambalot and Tobiah, their anger in chapter 4, it was a response to the fact that their power and their influence, they were being endangered, right? They saw Nehemiah and the work of rebuilding the wall as a threat to those things, revealing what they cared most about, what they really loved, what was driving their attitudes and actions and motives. It was the pursuit of power and influence. 
You see, and if I'm honest, a lot of times, I think that's what my own anger reveals, right? When my kids disobey, right, or when people ignore my influence, I can tend to get angry sometimes, right? And that's a reality that what's going on in my heart is that I'm, what I love and what I worship most isn't God, it's something else, right? If you want to, we don't have time this morning, but if you want to hear a story about that, I encourage you to go online, find our series from a few summers ago in Proverbs. There's a sermon on anger there with a story that kind of fleshes that out a little bit more. But what we see happening this morning, right, is the question we want to ask is, right, so what is Nehemiah's anger a response to, right? What, what does his anger reveal that he loves that's being endangered? I think there's three things that the passage shows us about what he loves that, that's being endangered. And the first is simply this, it's God's word. You see, verse seven, he accuses the nobles and the officials of charging their own people interest, which was something that God in his word expressly, in unequivocal terms, right? Expressly forbids numerous times. Exodus 22 and Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 23, God clearly, emphatically tells his people never to charge one another interest. And yet that's exactly what's going on. Literally exactly what's going on. And Nehemiah is angry because God's own people are completely disregarding God's own word. And what's happening as a result is that God's people are being harmed. And that's the second thing I think we see that Nehemiah loves, right? Verse 80 says, as far as possible, we've bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles, but now you are selling your own people. It's unclear if what Nehemiah is talking about there is something that he did or something that former exiles had done when they returned to the land of Jerusalem, buying back their, um, buying back their brothers from, from out of slavery. But either way, the point that he's making, right, is that a special effort had been made to buy back people out of slavery and into freedom so they might live as God's people. And yet now these wealthy Jewish landowners not only are causing God's people to be sold back into debt slavery, but they're, all sell they're also selling those slaves to other people. They're totally disregarding it. And so these were Nehemiah's own spiritual family, and he loves these people. He couldn't bear to see them oppressed or taken advantage of. And the truth is, neither could God, right? You look at a bunch of the Old Testament prophets, most clearly in Amos chapter 2, we see that the oppression of the weak and of the poor within God's people was one of the primary reasons why God allowed his people to be conquered by Babylon and then Persia eventually. He allowed them to be taken into exile because it is totally out of line with his own heart. Because God doesn't just love his word and love his priorities, God loves his people. So does Nehemiah. But it's, it's not just God's word and God's people that Nehemiah's anger reveals that he loves. It's God himself. You see, he wants God's name to be honored and glorified among the nations. In verse 9, he says, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? See, throughout the Old Testament, the, what the purpose of God's people is in large part is that they might reveal with their lives the goodness of God, that they might show the world with their lives and with their relationships among others who he is and what he's really like but they're taking advantage of each other, their enslavement of one another, that was accomplishing the exact opposite purpose. The exact opposite, right? Their message that their actions of proclaiming was God, about God was not one that was honoring and glorifying to him, it was showing the world his goodness, so it was shaming him. 
It was telling the world that God is a selfish and greedy God, just like every other God there is. And so out of a love for God, his name, his glory, out of a love for God's people, out of a love for God's word, Nehemiah gathers everyone together and he confronts the nobles and the officials who are oppressing their own people. And he calls them not only to stop charging interest, but to cancel their debts entirely and to give everyone back not only the interest they charged, but everything they were holding as collateral and took. And what you can't miss in this scene is that Nehemiah actually includes himself in this response. Verse 10, right, we find out that while he wasn't charging people interest, right, he was still making loans to people, and that was totally fine. That was in line with God's word, right? But what he realizes, what Nehemiah gets, is that the dire situation God's people are in called them for not, not merely to embrace the letter of the law, but to embrace the very spirit of God's heart. Deuteronomy 15, God is talking to his people. He commands them, he says, don't be hard-hearted and tight-fisted towards those who are poor and weak and oppressed among you. Rather, he says, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your own wine presses. You see, what Nehemiah gets is that, that this wasn't a time for loans, even legitimate ones. It was a time for gifts and for sacrificial and radical generosity. What I admire so much about Nehemiah is that he allows God to keep shaping and changing his heart. Right? He, he doesn't have this attitude where he's arrived and that everybody else has got to get their stuff together, right? He has an attitude that keeps asking God, what is it that you need to keep doing in me? Where do I need to keep submitting to you? One that keeps asking God, where is it that I am out of line? Not just with your word, but with your very heart. Man, my heart is that we would be a church like that. Right, one that even in our righteous anger towards sin, that we would be a people who keep asking God where there is stuff in our own hearts that's out of line with his. And that he would keep correcting and shaping us. And so that even in our righteous anger towards sin, we'd be characterized by being a people of humility towards God. And so Nehemiah, he... He confronts the selfish and greedy nature of these wealthy Jews and he calls them to repentance. He calls them not just, to, not just to stop doing what they're doing, but to turn the other direction. And by God's grace, they don't make excuses and they don't minimize their sin and, and then they don't, they don't blame shift. They, they, they own it. And they say, yes, we were wrong. And we will give back all that we have taken. You are right. We will do what you say. And because Nehemiah knows that it can be easy for people to be sorry, but not actually to repent of their sin, not actually to turn from it, he makes them promise to do it in front of the priests. And he shakes out his robe in front of them as this kind of symbolic gesture in a, of, of God's own judgment and rejection for anyone who rejects their promises and fails to do what they say they will do. Similar to what we see Paul doing in Acts 18 or Jesus instructing his own disciples to do in Matthew 10, right? When he tells them to, to wipe the dust off their sandals, right? And so in response, right, we see that 
that they do it. They do what they say they're going to do, and they give everything back. In response, everyone praises God, which is the right and natural response when you see repentance happening in a community. It's that it always brings joy. Repentance always feels very costly. I guarantee you, repentance is something that brings joy, not just in you, but in the lives of others, right? And you're like, wow, that, that went really well, right? Yes, yes it did, right? It, it really did go well, right? And sometimes by God's grace, when we confront sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters, it does go well. Sometimes by God's grace, it does. Often it does not, though. And what's so important that you see is that Nehemiah, as he, as he thinks about these things, as he takes counsel with himself, right? He's not asking whether or not he should confront sin in the lives of his brothers. He's taking counsel to do it wisely, but he's not asking if he should. You see, no matter how people were going to respond, no matter what the cost was, he was going to confront the sin that he saw in that community because he loved what he loved more than his own power and influence, what he loved more than the approval of the officials, what he cared about more than his own personal comfort, what he longed for more than his own control of his own life and variables in a situation. What he loved most was God and his word and his people. So Nehemiah calls the people of God not merely to restitution, but to a sacrificial generosity, to reject full sale a pursuit of selfish gain, and to instead embody God's own heart for radical and sacrificial generosity towards them. And Nehemiah, he leads the way. I need to show you this, right? Not just in this moment but he leads the way in that throughout his time in Jerusalem. Right, verse 14 through 18, we see that Nehemiah was characterized not just by moments of generosity, but by a lifestyle of sacrificial generosity, right? As the governor of the region, he would have been entitled not only to a generous salary, but to all kinds of bonuses and perks and benefits, right? And that would have allowed him to live a life of comfort and luxury and amass a great amount of wealth and property and influence and prestige, right? Now, unlike the Persian predecessors, Nehemiah doesn't take advantage of any of those things. He doesn't use his power or position or privilege for selfish gain. Instead, what we see is that he forfeits what he is owed. He forfeits the things he has under Persian law, the things he has rights to, in order to help the people of God. We see in verse 14, he refuses to collect or use extra taxes to fund a lavish food budget, nor does he accumulate land in verse 16, which would have been another way that governors would have received compensation. If people couldn't pay their taxes, they would have just taken their land and amassed land, which was obviously a form of wealth, right? And not only that, we see in verse 17 that he uses his own salary to generously feed not just himself, not just the people that he's responsible for, but a table of 150 men every night. If you run the numbers, you, you look at the, the food that he lists, what you find is that that food's actually way more than even 150 men could eat. Historians point out how in situations like this kind of a thing, leftovers would have been taken home by the guests and servants to feed their own families as well. And you can be real sure that wasn't an accident. Nehemiah is not a dude who doesn't know how to count, right? He's not a guy who doesn't know how to plan accurately for what's going on. He knows exactly what 150 people need to eat. And he also knows that his heart is not just to feed them. He is characterized by being one of radical generosity, 
sacrificial generosity towards others. Over the course of his 12 years as governor in Jerusalem, Nehemiah would have had every opportunity to pursue a life of selfish gain, to amass for himself wealth and land and property and uh, and to amass prestige and influence. And yet what we see is that he lives a life characterized by sacrificial generosity. He doesn't lord his power and position and privilege over God's people or use it for his own advantage. He labors alongside them in building the wall, and he gives of himself and his resources, not out of the abundance, but he gives sacrificially for the good of others, not his own gain. And the question you have to ask is why? Why? Why would he live like that? Why would he call God's people to live like that? And the answer, you see it two separate times in the passage. It's translated differently, but it's the same word. Verse nine, he says, shouldn't we walk in the fear of our God. Verse 15, out of reverence. It's the same word for fear for God. He says, I didn't act like that. I didn't act like the former governors. Church, it is the fear of God that was driving Nehemiah to reject a life pursuing selfish gain and to instead embody God's own sacrificial generosity towards his people. And I think the reality is that sometimes that language about a fear of God, we have a really hard time understanding that because, in large part, because there's not really a good English equivalent for the word that's translated as fear here. Um, when we hear the word fear, we, we tend to think about being scared of something, right? But that's not the whole picture. See, in Hebrew, that word for fear, it has, it has overtones of awe and reverence and humility and submission, you see, when the Bible's talking about fear, the Bible's, what it's really getting at is the idea of being overwhelmed by something, being controlled by something. It's getting at, functionally, the idea of worship, right? That's why the Bible divides fear into two main categories, right? <clears throat> you have the fear of God, and then you have the fear of everything else. And one is described positively and the other negatively. Proverbs 28, 14, it says, Blessed is the one who always trembles before God, who fears him, who reveres his name. But whoever hardens their heart, they fall into trouble. Proverbs 29, 25, A fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be kept safe. You see, like we talked about earlier, right? Our fear reveals the things that we love most, that are being endangered, right? And so it's the thing that you fear loving most, is the thing that you will do anything to keep or anything to get. It's the thing that you functionally worship. It's the thing that has an overwhelming, controlling influence in your life. And when you fear God, what happens is that the overwhelming, controlling influence of our lives is Him. And we're in the spot that we are made to be, right? Because our purpose is to worship God and to be His people, right? And when you're in that spot, everything else falls rightly into place. And it leads to a life that reflects Him, that's characterized, among many other things, one by characterized by generosity and not by greed. But when you fear something else, when you fear something other than God, when something other than him is the overwhelming controlling influence in your life, when what you are functionally fearing, when you are functionally worshiping is something other than God, then everything is out of whack. 
And it always leads to pain and heartache and conflict and destruction because when we worship something other than God, that is the very definition of sin. That's the very heart of it. And sin corrupts everything. Just like you see happening in our own passage with their Jewish brothers taking advantage of one another. And let's just shoot straight. You see it in your own life as well. When what we love most, when what we fear losing most is not God, but it's something else. It messes with our lives. It causes us to live in ways that are radically out of line with God and his word. You see, what we see happening, we saw this in chapter one, is that Nehemiah, he has a right view of God. He has a right view of God, one where God is sovereign and supreme and all-powerful and holy and one who is in charge, right? But he's also one who is good. One who we saw in chapter one who loves God and redeems his people. Church, I need you to see this. It is only when you see that that's the kind of God that God really is, that he is utterly glorious and yet immeasurably good. That's the only way you go from being afraid of him to having an awe and a reverence and a fearful love of him. To a life, instead of fearfully pursuing your own gain, a life of joyfully giving for the glory of God and the good of others. See, because here's the reality, church, right? God-fearers are God-imitators. God-fearers are God-imitators. When, when you revere God, when what you care about most is what he thinks, when what you worship is him, you start living and acting and thinking like he does. You start reflecting his nature and character. I quoted Deuteronomy 15 earlier where God calls his people to an attitude of open-handed generosity with one another. At the end of that passage, right, we see that God roots that call to generosity in his own generosity towards them. He says in verse 16, give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you. The Apostle Paul gives similar instructions to the Corinthians, calling them to a life of sacrificial generosity instead of the pursuit of selfish gain, right? And he motivates them by responding to God's own grace towards them. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, he writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Nehemiah gets that. He gets that. He sees how gracious and good and generous God has been towards him. And that's what's motivating and empowering him to live a life that is wildly countercultural, a life of sacrificial generosity instead of one just pursuing selfish gain. One top commentator sums it up this way. He says, bigger to him than his prestige as governor, better to him than the privileges the governor would enjoy was the good that would come to the people of God as they were advanced through the building of the walls. You see, what Nehemiah wanted was God's name exalted and God's weak and vulnerable people protected because what he loved and feared was God. Church, you have to see that. John Newton, he wrote this famous hymn, right? Amazing grace, everybody knows it. I think the, the second verse of that hymn sums up so perfectly what happens with regards to what happens when we get a right view of God, right? It goes this way. Newton writes, it was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace 
my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. Church, it is God's grace towards you made known in the person and the work of Jesus. That's what causes you to not only to go from being afraid of him to having a revering awe and love for him. But also what it does is it roots out all your other fears. It gives you something better to fear, something better to worship, something better to be in awe of, something better to be controlled by. We often talk, I often talk about Thomas Chalmers, he talks about the expulsive power of a new affection. The same thing's true. It's the expulsive power of a new fear that Nehemiah is talking about. And it's not a fear as in being afraid. It's a fear as in an awe and a reverence that the great king and creator of the very universe has given himself for you. And what that does is it removes all our fears so that instead of fearfully living for ourselves, what happens is you get to joyfully live like and for the one who's come for you. You see, every week, church, when we take communion, that's what we're remembering and celebrating. We're remembering God's radical grace and generosity to us. That's what we're reminding ourselves of. That's what we're choosing to remember and so communion, it doesn't make you, it might make you right with God. It doesn't save you. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, it's a chance for us to remind ourselves about the person and the work of Jesus, to remember that the great king and creator of the universe, the one who is glorious, utterly glorious, the one who created everything, holds it all together, sacrificed his own body to be broken and gave his own blood to be shed. A sacrificial generosity for you, so that we might be a people who not out of fear for God, not of being afraid of him, are generous, but a people who out of joy for his generosity towards us, honor and revere his name, and who reflect him to the world. And so as we sing, and as we worship, and as we remember that great God together, and remember the gospel in song, I want to encourage you if you've put your trust in Jesus to be your Savior, if you have received his sacrifice on your behalf for your sin, then whenever you're ready, go back and take communion. There's two tables, one on the left and on the right, and you can grab the bread and dip it in the juice, or you can take one of the packs back to your seat. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. But if not, if you're here this morning and you're still figuring out who Jesus is, and if his generosity towards you is something that you want him to receive, then I want to encourage you. You are so welcome here in this community. But I would encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God's not after rituals. He's not after going through the motions. He's after a heart that fears him, one that reveres his name, like Nehemiah in chapter one, who not does it out of, of dread, but one who delights to fear his name. And so if this morning, if you do put your trust in him, then go back and take communion. Do it during our time of worship. We'd love to have you do that. But whatever the case, I'd encourage you, wherever you're at, talk with God this morning. What is it that your anger is revealing that you love most? And how is that an opposition to God's kingdom? Is what you are angry about, does it reveal that what you love most is God and his word and his people? Or does it reveal that you love something else?
Ask God by his grace and by his spirit to give your heart eyes to see what's going on internally. So often we are blind to what's really going on in our heart and you need the spirit of God to show you what's happening. So ask him that he would. But also ask God that he would help you not just to see his glory, but to see his grace so that you might joyfully revere and fear his name and that you might be motivated and empowered to reject a life of selfish gain and instead embody God's own sacrificial generosity in your relationships with others. Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful for you and we are thankful this morning to remember your radical and sacrificial generosity towards us. God, we're so grateful that you don't motivate us towards being like you out of guilt and shame and duty and obligation, but you do it out of inviting us to respond to your own radical love and grace and generosity shown to us. God thinks that you are such a good God like that, that you are not greedy and capricious, but God, you are a one who, who is gracious and generous. And so God, out of a love for you, and out of a fearful revering of your name, would you cause us to be a people who reflect that in our lives? We pray, amen.